So maybe you're already uh, a little bit uh, interested in the topic based upon my little, my little subheading there, why Christians perceived as the fun police. Um, it could be a kind of interesting sermon today. We'll see how we go. Um, it could be, I don't think it'll be controversial or anything, but what I've done is I've wanted to, sorry, I'm just getting set up. I've wanted to have a bit of a look at the way that society perceives Christians and the church because I do think that that's an important part of what we do. I do think it's important for us to understand uh, what society thinks of us in order to be able to do something quite important. So I guess I just should have a little, um, uh, a little disclaimer at the start which is that this is going to be short and I'm going to be talking about the law today. So that's as in the law as understood by Christians, which means that it's a huge topic, and I only have, as Nathan laughed, half an hour. So I'm not going to be able to cover all the different aspects that there are to cover, and there might be plenty of different things that I don't get to focus on, but I just want to talk about one specific area and uh, kind of highlight that, and then maybe we'll talk about it more some other time, okay? So the law, uh, as discussed within Christianity, really means... Uh, it's pretty broad. It really means sort of the idea of uh, doing or not doing certain things as commanded by God. So that's, a, that's pretty huge. You know, if you know the Old Testament, there's a lot of stuff about the law in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes in the New Testament. And there's a lot of other stuff about the law and the New Covenant and so much stuff going on. But the reason that I actually want to talk about it is because of the verse in Matthew 28:19, go out into the world and make disciples, the Great Commission. And you, if you've heard me preach before, some of you have. I'm a bit of a one-trick pony. Pretty much all I really like to talk about is the Great Commission. Um, and because I like to talk about the basics and what I consider to be the essentials. Loving God, loving people, and making disciples. And that's what the project is all about. Making disciples of Jesus. But um, I guess you could ask the question, what does the Great Commission, going and making disciples, have to do with the law? And it's not necessarily what you might be thinking. You might be thinking that perhaps going and making disciples became the new law, and so that's the connection. And while that might be true, in a sense, it's not what I'm going to be talking about today. I actually want to focus on talking about the law because I think that it's actually what everybody else focuses on as well. Let me explain what I mean. The people that we are going to go and make disciples of are currently not disciples. Now, that might sound obvious, okay, but the people that... God has asked us to go and reach are not people that are Christians, they're not people that know Jesus. And therefore, because of that, the opinions and the thoughts that they have about Christianity are important because they affect our ability to be able to talk to them. If they've got walls already built against Christianity because of certain perspectives, then those things are going to affect our ability to be able to go out and make disciples. And uh, I do think that um, doing the right thing is at the forefront of people's thinking when it comes to Christianity. I think that um, non-Christians consider Christianity to be about being good or not being able to have any fun or obeying the rules or doing what you're told or telling other people what to do. When I talk to, particularly at the school, when I talk to uh, non-Christian kids or Christian kids, really they, they just quite quickly just start talking about rules. They start talking about all the things you can do and all the things you can't do. In other words, really, 
you know, to the, a big group of people, the majority of people, Christianity seems to be about rules. And like I said, that's particularly when you're going to talk to younger people, but I think probably older people think the same thing. But I also think that not just non-Christians, but Christians think about the rules quite a bit as well. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it has a potential to become a really bad thing if that's all you think about. Christians can easily become obsessed with rules, constantly thinking about the way that they either obey them or disobey them, continually dwelling on their successes or their failures and kind of having some sort of idea that these things that they've gotten right or wrong somehow affect the way that God thinks of them. Somewhere along the line, someone sold the world the lie that Christianity was the story of an angry God who hated everyone and so made them keep a whole bunch of crazy rules just so they could stay out of hell. Is that the sort of thing that you've ever heard non-Christians think that Christianity is about, that God is angry, he's an angry person who's making rules to stop people from having fun and there's heaps and heaps of rules and it's just, you've got to keep out of hell, that's the whole point. And obviously the truth is that not one of those points that I've got in black there are actually true. God is not angry, he loves people. The rules are not crazy and keeping them does not get you into heaven. There's a huge disparity between what the general population thinks Christianity is and what Christianity actually is, which is all about Jesus. So the reason that I want to talk about the law is that I think that this incorrect understanding of Christianity held by both people that do love Jesus and people that don't severely impedes our ability to fulfill the Great Commission. I hope that makes sense. I hope you can see the connection there. So... In 2008, a study was conducted by LifeWay Research in the United States, and it said this, In a portrait of the unchurched in America, the study found that most are willing to hear what people have to say about Christianity, but a majority also sees the church as a place full of hypocrites. A full 72% of the people interviewed said that they think the church is full of hypocrites. Interesting. This claim of hypocrisy, I think, is a perfect example of what's actually wrong with the general understanding of the church. But perhaps when we see a statistic statistic like that, we should actually ask, well, what actually is a hypocrite? Because I kind of just assumed that they were wrong, that we weren't hypocrites, you know? And so I looked it up and wanted to find out if I was. What's a hypocrite? According to the the definition, the online uh, dictionary, it says, a person who claims to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform, a pretender. That's a pretty interesting definition, I think. Because what do you think? Do you think it's true? Do you think it's accurate? Do you think that the church really is full of hypocrites? Well, maybe I'm being controversial, but I would say it is true. It is accurate. I can speak for myself, it pretty well sums me up. I certainly do have moral standards and beliefs which my own behavior does not always conform to. Of course I do. That's why I need Jesus. That's why we're here, because we can't do the things by ourselves that we know we should do. If I wasn't a hypocrite, using that definition, then assuming that I thought all of the right things, I'd be perfect. Even Paul was a hypocrite by those standards. Maybe you've read this verse before in Romans. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. 
Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. That sounds to me to be the definition of hypocrisy. <clears throat> just as a side issue, I don't think this is, quite obviously, this isn't just the church's issue. This is humanity's problem. Everyone is a hypocrite. Not just the people who make moral claims like Christians do. We're all fallen sinful people, all of us. And not only can we not live by Jesus' standard, we can't even live by our own standards. So it's a pretty ridiculous claim that people make that says that the church is full of hypocrites. The church is full of people. And people are hypocrites. Just like politicians or teachers or soldiers or nurses. It's just that for some reason, people think that churches should magically be different. That people in churches should magically be able to do all the things that they say that they want to do. And look, I think that they should be different, but in a different way. They should. But the difference is not going to mean that they never sin. The difference is going to be what happens after they sin. What do they do after they've sinned? That's the difference. What do you do after you've wronged someone or hurt someone? I think that's where the difference comes into play. So what's the real issue here? Somewhere along the lines, people have bought the lie that Christians are supposed to be perfect. If you're a Christian in the room, you know that that's not true. Well, I know that I'm not. And that lie makes it virtually impossible to have a discussion with someone who actually believes it. It means that they do not think that they could go to church because they are too sinful. And it also means that they think that you're a faker because they know that you're sinful. Even just a tiny bit rude sometimes is enough to show that person's not what they say they are. They're a hypocrite. Uh, in the Screwtape Letters, the Screwtape Letters is a book by C.S. Lewis, which is a fictional account of letters written from one demon to another demon. Um, and they're kind of t discussing the way that they can m most mess with humans. And in the second chapter, the patient, who's the person that the demon is kind of tempting, becomes a Christian and goes to church. And Screwtape, the older, wiser demon uncle, says, you don't have to worry. The church is actually at not that much of a bad place for the patient to go. He actually says the church is one of our greatest allies because of the way that we can use people in the church against each other in really subconscious ways. So this is a pretty big chunk here. Okay, I'm going to read it. You might not be able to read along with me. We'll see how we go. When he goes inside the church, so this is the demon talking about his patient, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face bustling up to him. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbours whom he has hitherto avoided. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains, provided that any of those neighbours sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must somehow be ridiculous. This is true. I see this particularly with students all the time, you know. They go to the church or they talk to the people that are the most similar to them and they, because I guess the point is, everyone judges everyone all the time. Uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. I'll keep reading. I've been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. 
Of course, if they do, if the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player, or the man with squeaky boots, a miser and an extortioner, then your task is so much the easier. And this is the crucial bit. All you have to do is keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? Does that make sense? You get that? Because we, we walk in to a situation and we look at everybody else, but we don't look at ourselves. We never look at ourselves. You may ask whether it is possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring even to a human mind. It is wormwood, it is. Handle him properly and it simply won't come into his head. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy. The enemy for the demon obviously is God. He hasn't been with God long enough to have any real humility yet. What he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favourable credit balance in the enemy's ledger, in God's ledger, by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbours at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. So hopefully you can see how that passage relates to what would be a really commonplace occurrence quite well. People judge. It's what we do. We look at something and we size it up. And we do it subconsciously. And I'm not really even that convinced that it's always such a bad thing. Judging has kind of got this terrible... Uh, connotation to it but judging is really close to discernment you know sometimes you actually need to judge whether or not a situation is safe or not so we're kind of predisposed to look and analyze situations and try to work stuff out the problem is it becomes negative when those judgments we make are foolish and stupid and putting other people down which most of the time they are but can I encourage you to think for a moment whether or not you yourself even if you've been a church go your entire life ever think that way about people or other churches that you've been to, or even this church and the people in it. It doesn't really make any sense that people would judge religion based upon people in religion, as opposed to judging the religion on its merits alone. But it happens all the time. So let's keep moving on with a bit more research, this time from Australia. In 2011, this guy Mark McCrindle conducted a study in Australia about public opinion of Christianity, and I found this really interesting. Okay, so I've got a couple graphs. This first one here is a significant warmth towards Christianity. So you've got your bottom four there which are warm and your top ones which are cold. And you've only got 4% of people which are passionately opposed. This is of the sample, obviously. He didn't ask everyone in Australia. Okay, and then 13% of people have strong reservations, 11 with some issue with Christianity, and 13 say uh, people should have religious freedom. And then the second half are people that are at least a little bit warm towards all the way down the bottom, the massive majority, as, as far as that goes, 33% of people that consider themselves Christian. This next one uh, is, explains how negative particular elements of supposed Christianity, Christianity are for people. And it actually connects with this one, which is the one I want to talk about. McCrindle also researched what was stopping many people from considering the claims of Jesus. These are called the top 10 belief blockers. Number one, church abuse. Number two, hypocrisy. Judging others, religious views, suffering, issues around money, uh, outdated, hell and condemnation, homosexuality and exclusivity. These are, I mean, I was really interested in this study. I think it's really interesting to see what 
Everybody else thinks about us, pretty much, or thinks about the church and why and what are the issues. I actually think it would be cool, I don't know, maybe not, but um, to do like a, a series on these things, kind of debunking these things. It would be really interesting to see, well, how do we, what do we as a church have to say about issues around money or the fact that people think that the religion is outdated? But the ones I want to talk about today are two and three. Two and three demonstrate a massive confusion about what Christianity really is. And my question to you today is going to be, are you adding to that confusion? There's a story that Nathan spoke about a few, a few weeks ago, which was the sinful uh, woman who cleaned Jesus' feet with her hair. And that's actually what got me thinking about all of this. So let's look at it together. If you've got your Bible, it's in Luke 7, 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, bought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed, him, uh, anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now Nathan was making a different point about the story that I'm about to make. But when Nathan was, was kind of talking about it, it really stuck out to me. Because while we can all identify with the woman, we're all sinners, I wonder how many of us actually should be identifying with the Pharisee. As Christians, we have a much higher likelihood of becoming Pharisees than remaining like the woman because our sins have been forgiven. And connected to the statistics that I just saw, we are seen as Pharisees by the world, whether we like it or not. And we should examine ourselves carefully to ensure that we're not one. See, I asked myself this question while Nath was preaching. I asked, how often... Have I not seen the passion and love for God in people because all I've been able to see is their sin? The thing about that story is that the Pharisee seemed not to be affected by the passion that she had for Jesus. He just sat there, from what we can tell, and looked at a woman weeping at Jesus' feet and all he could think about was how sinful she was. That's all he saw. I think it's really easy and sadly common for us to become blinded by people's sin so much that we don't really see them as savable anymore. Or perhaps we still see them as savable, but we just don't really think about it. Maybe we think that they deserve the life that they've got, 
And we're so busy remembering how sinful they are that any small turning towards Jesus that we could help them with is completely unseen because we're examining their sin instead of them. We're examining their sin at the cost of who they are. So I want to dispel a few things and maybe give you something to think about this week. The Christian stereotype is often as the moral police. We're the goody-goodies that go around telling people what they can and can't do, who they can and can't sleep with, and how much they can drink, or what constitutes a swear word, or whether their clothes are modest enough. And all of that's not necessarily born from a bad place, but it can have some pretty terrible consequences. What we end up creating when we are endless moralizers, particularly to those people that we want to reach out to, is the idea that people believe they have to think right and be right before they can come to Jesus, before they can come to church. And I think that's why we're accused of judgmentalism and hypocrisy, because we always talk about the law. We're always talking about sin. People believe that they have to get their lives together before coming to church. Of course we know that this is not the case, because we're not right. That's why we need Jesus. We know that we're wrong. We know that our inclinations are often bent towards the destruction of ourselves and others. And that's why we need Jesus. Matthew 9, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. So why do people think that they need to be clean before they get in the shower? Why do they think they need to have all their answers before they're allowed to ask any questions? Perhaps the reason why is because that's the way we make it seem sometimes without realizing it. How about this as a question? Is a homosexual welcome in the church? Is a prostitute welcome in the church? And I don't mean an ex-prostitute, I mean a practicing prostitute. Are they welcome in the church? Or even a murderer? See, these are sins that we seem to have graded really highly, you know? But what about premarital sex? Are we comfortable allowing adulterers in the church as long as they're committing adultery with opposite genders? What we talk about the most, I think, what we talk about the most is what comes across as the most important. You talk more about rules than grace. You talk more about sin than Jesus. The opinion that non-Christians hold of Christians matters because we want to disciple them. That's why it matters. We want them to come to church and we want them to know Jesus and we want their lives to be better. And not just their lives, but of infinite more importance, their eternities. Here's another little catchphrase that you may have heard bandied around Christian circles a bit. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Have you heard that one? And that kind of might have seemed what I was getting at before when I said we should welcome sinners into the church. And we should. Because you're all welcome in the church and you're all sinners. And I'm a sinner and I'm welcome in the church. And so sinners are, of course, that's the reason that we need to be here. That's the reason we need Jesus. But some people really struggle to understand how you can love the sinner and hate the sin. Because it doesn't work because people identify with the sin. People identify themselves with their sin, particularly if you're talking about sexual sin, which people don't even identify as sin at all. 
Loving a murderer and hating murder is all well and good, and people will be with you there. They can understand that. But people really struggle to understand how you can love the sinner and hate the sin if their sin is homosexuality because people view their sexuality as who they are. So when the sin is homosexuality, it translates into you hating them. Does that make sense? How do you hate the sinner and love... How do you hate the sin and love the sinner if they identify with their sin and don't see it as sin? It's a really difficult situation to be in. And this is the one area, I think, at the moment where the church is struggling to not be judgmental hypocrites that go around talking about the law all the time and not talking about grace. What's the solution? I'm not advocating that we're pro-sin or that we should love sin. But perhaps for non-Christians, <clears throat> we should talk a bit less about their sin. Let's face it, they don't believe in sin anyway, so we're probably not going to kick many goals. And when I say talk less about sin, I don't mean that we ignore it or we justify it or encourage it. I just mean make sure that you're loving them in an obvious way and not just banging on about how sinful they are. Actually love them. Perhaps Christians talk too much about sin outside the church and not enough about sin inside the church. Jesus saves us from sin, not us talking about it. Once we've been saved from sin, he works in us through the Holy Spirit to bring about transformation and sanctification. It is not our holiness that saves us, but because we are saved that we slowly become more holy. <clears throat> Just going okay? Full on. <clears throat> One of the other downfalls about talking about the law so much with non-Christians is I think they begin to adopt a system of thought about the law which is inaccurate. As I said before, Christians easily become stereotyped as the moral police. And this can create in people a sense that the Bible is just a big book of rules. And not simply rules, but actual prohibitions. In a society that has become increasingly obsessed with independence, many of the laws that are in the Bible don't seem to make sense anymore. In modern society, people are no, long, no longer concerned with what is best for their community. They're just concerned with what's best for them. See, because the law was not just a list of prohibitions put in place to make people sad and frustrated and confused, it was a list of helpful guidelines for creating a functioning and healthy community. A community where people do not commit murder or adultery is a healthy community. That's a good community. As the church became the moral police, we also became the fun police because breaking the law has elements perceived to be fun. Let's take a modern human law of speed limits as an example. Speed limits are there to stop you from having fun. That's the reason. That's the reason the government puts speed limits in place because they know that you like to go fast and that you would prefer to enjoy yourself as much as possible and they want you to enjoy yourself as little as possible. So they put a cap on how fast you can go because they don't want you to have any fun. Of course you know that that's not the case. Speed limits exist for our safety. A society without any speed limits anywhere will not be a safe and functioning society. It may at first seem to take people's fun away, but in the long run, it's actually a more long-term guarantee of joy to have that rule in place. In a society where we can drive as fast as we want, we might have some short-term, really, really thrilling fun, but if we go 150 through a school zone at 3 o'clock and run over someone... Our fun has been cut short, indefinitely. The repercussions of breaking the law 
are that it hurts other people, and in hurting other people, it hurts us. As I've said before, you do not break God's law. You break yourself against God's law. And that's what people do. <clears throat> you probably see it. Friends of yours that have lives that they don't enjoy. Lives that have become difficult struggles. And at the causal root of many of their problems is the fact that they broke the law somewhere along the line. And they've never wanted to face up to it. God's law provides a framework for your most successful life. And, do not, and I, I don't mean by that success in human terms, but long-term joy and fulfilment over the course of an entire lifetime. Those lives have their greatest foundation in following the liberating guidelines that God has given us. And this is where love comes into it. People can see you talking about law in two different ways. They can see it as you judging them and hating them, or as you warning them and loving them. The truth is that the law against speeding the law against adultery, and the warning that we give a toddler about touching a hot plate can all be given for the same reason, to help someone avoid pain, to guide someone to more joy. But they can also all be seen as a bunch of rules preventing someone's free will and ability to express themselves however they want, even if it results in pain. Does that make sense? The way that we talk about the law impacts the way that people think we think about the law. I think that if we were open and honest with people about our own struggles with hypocrisy and the law and talked about the law as a liberating, freedom-giving thing as opposed to a set of rules all the time, then the general understanding of Christianity would change. To wrap it up, we should really remember that we're not under the law as discussed in the Old Testament anymore. We now live under the new covenant of Jesus. John Piper said, My guess is that there is a good deal of confusion in our minds when we read on one hand Romans 6.14, you are no longer under the law but under grace. But on the other hand, in Romans 3.31, do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. The answer to this is to live in love. Owe nothing except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbour has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you should not kill, uh, kill you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, they are summed up in this sentence, love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, and therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not seek to avoid a brother who differs, and it does not wear a scowl. It does not spread rumours or speak evil of a neighbour. It does not close its ears to the evidence. Instead, love rejoices in the truth and is peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Love looks people in the eye and communicates goodwill with them. Love does not pout. It is not self-pitying. It does not use ultimatums to get its own way. <clears throat> to finish up, let's remember that we do not change people. We do not do the changing in people. The Lord does not change people. Jesus does the changing. Obedience brings about faith and faith brings about love. The encouragement this week for you is to work through that really difficult territory of loving people and wanting the best for them without accepting their sin, which is really difficult. But Jesus did it. He modelled it for us. In Matthew twenty-three twenty-seven. 
Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Let's not give the world and our non-Christian friends reasons to accuse us of this. We're all a little bit dirty on the inside. That's why we need Jesus. We are all receivers of grace. And let's help people see that. Let's not model to people the way that we live out the law. Let's show people the way that Jesus has intersected with us and given us grace. Be honest and open about your sin. Don't buy the lie for yourself that Christians are perfect and don't help perpetuate it. We are all receivers of grace, which has freed us to obey the law. So instead of being the moral police that walk around accusing of sin, instead of being the dispensers of the law, let us focus on being dispensers of God's grace because it's grace that saves people and not the law. You pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you have come to us and that you have fulfilled the law, not abolished it, but fulfilled it. Thank you that you have paid the price for our sin and we don't need to be obsessed with being perfect. We just need to be obsessed with you and that you will perfect us. I pray for all of us that we would go through the difficult struggle of loving people and finding ways to love people and look past their sin and be dispensers of grace to people. Show people the reality of who you are and debunk the wrong ideas that society has about the church, about your church, and about you. I pray for your grace to be with all of us as we consider this and think about this, consider people that we have ignored because of their sin, people that we have rejected because of their sin. And remember that, but by your grace, there we go as well. Amen.